Welcome to Song Surgery, where we dissect hit records with the songwriters who composed them and the singers and musicians who performed on them. I'm Sid Holmes. Let's get started. During the 1960s, songwriter Willie Clark teamed up with Clarence Reed, churning out a string of regional hits for his Deep City Records. But the duo struck true gold in 1971 when 17-year-old Betty Wright scored her second top 40 hit, selling over 2 million copies of her single, Clean Up Woman. Tonight is the night. No pain, no gain. No pain, no pain, no pain, no pain, no gain, no gain, no. No pain, no pain, no pain, no pain, no gain, no gain. And a Grammy Award for Where Is the Love? Betty releases Pure Love in 1970, hit number 40, R&B. And then 1971 is the biggie, Clean Up Woman, number six U.S., number two R&B. And that was on her second album. How did Clean Up Woman come about? We had just finished the Betty Wright album. And we were ready, like I had promised Clarence, go ahead, work with me on this with Betty. Anything I say we want and do, we're going to do it. We're going to finish her album on it. So we put his heart and soul in it. She put her, we worked it out. So on the last day when we said, okay, Henry Stone loves the album. He's going to go with the album. And he said, now we're ready to start with my album. I said, okay, let's go. So we went into the piano room. And he started playing this a clean up man. And I said, I said, whoa, 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 Clarence, clean up man. He said, yeah, this is gonna be my first song. I said, Clarence, come on, man. We gotta do one more song on Betty. Clean up woman. He started playing chords on the piano. Yeah. Isaac Hayes told him to do something with, with that grip from uh, Sam and Dave. So when you first heard him playing these chords, how long did it take you to figure out, hey, he's got something here? I knew the idea and the groove of it was not a strange groove. It was a familiar groove. A Sam and Dave song, a soul man. But what made it different? Clarence. <laughs> <laughs> with the piano. <laughs> well, Isaac Hayes gave him, told him to do something with this man. I know you can make another song out there. Go, go for it. Clarence was very good at taking music and transposing it into an original sound. He was very good at it. So you told Clarence, hey, it's got to be clean up woman. When you heard him playing these chords, you instantly thought 
Betty needs to record this? Yeah. I knew what cleanup man meant because he had talked to me while we were having a conversation. He said, you know, the guy who comes around and, and clean up the house and, and, and take out the, the, the trash and, and the women start liking him for being this and that. And the cleanup man come around and hit the home run. And I said, let's do it on Betty. Because there was one thing I knew at the time. I knew that whatever the song was going to be, it sounded like it could grab a hole and be a hit. Now, in my book, it was like backup, almost guaranteed. If Betty Wright had something to do with it, the chances of it becoming a hit was 9, 10, 12, 15, 100 times better than the idea of Clarence doing it because Betty had already made an impression Number one song in Miami, number one song in Tampa, and girls can't do what the guys do. Girls, you can't do what the guys do, no, and still be a lady. Girls, you can't do what the guys do, no, and still be a lady. She was already on a road. She had a track record. Yeah, and plus, she was a better singer than Clarence. (laughs) (laughs) And he agreed? Hey, you know what? That was one of the few times that me and him did not have a disagreement. Well, I won't say one of the few times. It was one of the best times because it it was a situation where we could write songs together, but we couldn't produce songs together. We could not be the last word in the studio when it came down to doing the product. How do you and Clarence work together? So after we would write the song, it was up to me to produce it and to make necessary changes as I saw fit. He got to the point where he put it in my pocket and under my control after we wrote the song. And whatever changes I made, he never questioned them. He always accepted them. In other words, he began to have a lot of faith in me as far as making the final product. I could tell you how it first started. When me and him had our first conflict, our first disagreements in a recording session, it was on the Paul Kelly song, Chills and Fever. I went over to the drummer and told him, hey man, you're not playing the beat. You're not doing the beat right. And Clarence came over and said, hey, hey, pulled me away and said, let me talk to you. He said, don't, 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 don't talk to him. Let him play it. Let him play it because you don't want to. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. He either going to play it like I want him to play it. Uh, we'll get another drummer and cancel a session. Because Henry Stone had already told me that if you're going to compete in this business, you got to be better then number one are just as good as number one. And when you turn on the radio and say, this is a big hit, this is a number one record, he said, if you can't be as good as that or better, then just stop. You don't need to be in the business. So uh, being a perfectionist, as I want it to be, because I've learned from the flops in front of this, I said, I got a hit song here, Chills and Fever. 
I'm not going to let the drummer be like playing like he over at the club playing soft. And I had a rough time with drummers when I first started in the business because they were orientated to playing in nightclubs and not in recording sessions. It's a big difference. How so? Because you got to be aware of everything you do in the session. If the producer tell you a harder backbeat, you need a harder, more exact, definite backbeat. You can't be tip tapping because you're playing <laughs> soft. You can't because you're playing soft so your vocal can be heard. You know, like you're playing on a nightclub, unless you were to rock and roll like the Rolling Stone, the drum always going to be pounding. But in certain nightclubs, they play soul records. They said play the blues stuff. And the drummer had the habit of tip tapping. And I said, wait a minute. So when I said I was going to talk to the drummer, Clarence got pissed off. And the next thing I went over and talked to the drummer and said, oh, man, I was waiting for you to tell me what you wanted. So he started playing to, to a better groove and a better beat. So I look around and say, Clarence, I, and I said, Clarence left. He left. He left me in here by myself. But thank God I had Arnold Alberry with me. In other words, I don't, I don't go into no studio without a good musician to back up my ideas. You know what I mean? So when the record came out or when Clarence heard the final mix, he realized that what you were saying was correct. It was the strangest thing that could happen. But when Clarence left, it felt like I was on an island. And he walked from South Miami. He walked about 25 miles to Liberty City. He was pissed off, huh? Yeah, and I could hear dogs barking in the neighborhoods that he was trespassing on. And every now and then, the, the, there'd be sound in it. I knew it was him walking, <laughs> walking through people's neighborhoods. He was good at walking. He walked from Fort Lauderdale to Miami and refused to take a ride. So from that day forward, he started putting stuff in your pocket and letting you do the production. Yeah, huh? when, he, when he heard Chills and Fever, what I did and everything like that, that's when he began to, to say, OK, we're going to write the songs. I can go to Highline. I'll go to the casino while you're working on it. And that gave him some slack. So he would come back and I would play the session for him. And then if we need the background vocals in it, he would arrange the background vocals. And then he would uh, he would stay for the background vocals. But after I, he, he left it up to me to get the foundation. So what happened? You two decided to collaborate on lyrics for Clean Up Woman? I wrote the lyrics for Clean Up Woman. It didn't take long, maybe a day. It never takes long for me to write lyrics. It's almost a natural thing. You know, I got to ask you about these lyrics here. You sound like somebody who's had some experience. Yeah, FAMU, Florida A&M University, and growing up over time and listening to songs like Don't Fence Me In and Who Threw the Whiskey in the Well and my mama being what you might call, uh, what you call it, domestic house cleaner and stuff like that, that she was a cleanup woman and she just loved that song. You know, she didn't want me in the record business until she heard that. She kind of went along with it. But how do you translate somebody actually cleaning a house into somebody cleaning up and getting somebody's man? <laughs> because that's what the song is about. 
Where'd you learn that? Well, hey, hey, hey. When you have a lot of stuff in your house, like a lot of clutter, and you put it out on the sidewalk, and people start walking by and looking at it, oh, I like this. They start picking it up, and you're peeping out the window and say, hey, why did I throw that away? Why did I throw that away? So when they throw the man out, he walks out of the front door, he has a good job, and he's making money. But the woman gonna be at the point where, hey, I don't like that, blah, blah, this and blah, and kick him out of the house. And the minute the other women in the neighborhood find out that he's available, they come and pick him up, pick up on him, and move to another neighborhood. So I'm asking you, what experience did you draw upon to write this? It was easy for me to think of things. My experience and learning how to create, I was well-educated, and I read a lot of books at FAMU, training to be a school teacher. So I was able to be very observant about things around me. And I took a course called Problems in Love and Marriage. And it had that kind of stuff in there to learn about it. So that was your inspiration. Let me ask you about this lyric here. The cleanup woman will wipe his blues away. She'll give him plenty loving 24 hours a day. The cleanup woman shall sweep him off his feet. When you're writing this, are you visualizing this in your mind? Of course, yeah. You know, you take a take and spray that Windex on the table and you wipe <laughs> it. You're cleaning it up and you're making it feel brand new, look brand new. So a cleaner woman will wipe his blues away. Sweep when you're sweeping out the trash and the stuff to make the floor look good. It's kind of clever the way you connect actually cleaning up with somebody's love life. That's that, it. That's yeah. part That's part of the appeal of the song. Yeah, you know, that song right now, it made what you might call, it won a, a Grammy not too long ago, one of the top songs in the Grammy Hall of Fame. In fact, they owe me a Grammy right now. I don't know why they hesitate to send me my awards. I have to get on their case. They promised to send me my Grammys after the Grammy Awards call them back. They owe me two Grammys. God knows I'm not singing, I'm writing. So I, I really need my Grammys. <laughs> but for some reason, they when I call them back, I can't get them on the phone. I'm going to have to put some of my favorite people on the phone to call them. That's right. You better go get your Grammy. That's right. And that's one, a cleanup woman is a millennium hit along with uh, Tonight is the Night. You finish the lyrics. What happens next? Do you present it to Clarence or what happens? Yeah, I, I presented them to Clarence and he really loved them. And Clarence had access to my notebooks that I did at FAMU. So he would thumb through the pages and come up with the lyrics he likes. And he, he would say, let's do this song. Let's do this song. You know, when I wrote the lyrics to Clean Up Woman, he already had in his head what he was going to do with Clean Up Man by the time I finished Cleanup Woman. But he still had the feeling that it could be a bigger song with Cleanup Man. So he recorded Cleanup Man on Jimmy Boy Home. 
and I was talking to Jimmy Bohan maybe two or three weeks ago, and he said, hey, I, just, I was just blown away. Betty just took control of that cleanup woman, but by that time, went back in the days, I thought cleanup man was going to take control because we had some hits on him too. Mm-hmm. But it was all in the production. So what came next? Um, you presented the lyrics to Clarence. He liked them. Did you lay down the music with the musicians or did you present the song to Betty? I presented the song to Betty. In fact, she rehearsed it with me and Clarence. On, on the, the piano? piano? Yeah. And so when it was time to do the session, Betty was ready. You said the album had been completed, but now you want to add another song to it. Were you under any time constraint at all? No. Henry Stone made it possible for us to not have to watch the clock for studio time. It was like, you go in, you stay as long as you want, work as long as you want, because he knew we had, he knew we were what you might call worth the time and money. Did you tell him that you were going to do Clean Up Woman before or after it was recorded? We never went to him and said, we're going to do this song and we're going to do that song. What he would do is, is wait in his office to hear the music coming through the walls. And then he would just wait until we leave a cassette on his desk to get his critique on it. And then he would give us input. Like he would say, uh, man, you need to do something with the drums, Willie. Uh, don't sound like they sticking enough. Uh, he would give us input on the final production. But he never, he never stood over us or checked on us when we were creating something. He would like wait till we put at least the foundation down and leave it on his desk so he could listen to it three or four times. So you rehearsed it with Betty, you and Clarence, Clarence on the piano. The next step is assembling the musicians, right? I already knew the musicians I wanted to use. We went into the studio, me and Clarence. I was ready because I was engineering the sessions. I knew the guitar player from Jump Street. We had uh, Breeze on the drums, Arnold Larberry on keyboards, and we had Ron Bogdan on the bass and Lil B on the guitar. So I already knew the people I wanted to work with. Arnold Larberry, he did a lot of arrangement and stuff at Deep City. And Breeze was one of the best drummers in Miami. So I went in with Betty. Me, Betty, and Clarence, and we, she sang the whole song all the way through with Clarence playing the piano. Clarence gave Beaver the basic notes. Then he gave him. That was the bass line. That was supposed to have been the bass line. That's what he gave to Ron Bogdan. The keyboard man was like, he was just there doing the basic chord changes going with the song. Clarence played it first with them. And I changed it. I changed it around. As soon as Clarence left. <laughs> <laughs> there you go again. He, look, he said, it's up to you. He was on his way to highlight. He said, okay, that's it. 
And he was a squash class, wasn't it? He, he just left. I said, good. <laughs> <laughs> he, in other words, he, when he laid the foundation, it was like a roadmap for anybody to follow. He was very good at that. He was super. So now it's up to Willie Clark to record it, to make it sound like a number one song. So what I did, I took the bass line and changed it. I took the, I changed that to a guitar riff for Beaver. He was already into, and the drummer, the drum beat in Clean Up Woman is the hardest drum beat for any musician, any drummer to play. It has a loping Bahamas island type flavor to it. And I call it laid back, a loping beat. So the beat to clean up woman, you won't hardly find in any other music other than coming out of TK by those drummers that played that loping beat from the Bahamas and Jamaica and Cuba, those drummers. The song almost has like a reggae kind of sound to it. That's what I mean. And when we went to Philly, that's when the other day, when the drummer up there was the number one drummer in Philly. But he caught hell trying to play that beat. And when Betty went on stage, I said, look, let me tell you one thing, Betty. <laughs> <laughs> this is your hit song. And this is the reason you are up here on this big show with all these big artists. I say, don't let the band play anything behind you. I said, you know how your song is supposed to be played. You saw how we had to rehearse them over and over and over to get it right. They got it right and they know how to play it. So you make sure they play it. Because if you come up, if you up here and your song go like, whoa, whoa, that sounds awful. It's going to be you. And you know what Betty? Betty did. Hmm. They kicked off the song, Betty Wright, and brought on the stage, and then they stopped. I said, I noticed they didn't play the intro. So when she started the same intro, the drama was all off. And you know what, Betty turned around and said, oh, no, 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 wait a minute, baby, that's not the way we do it. And she gave him the move and the beat that he was supposed to do. And around the third time he got it right, and it kicked off and she, the people went crazy. And mm. the better right took control. And ever since that day, she has been in control. Hey, look, baby, don't let them make you look bad. You stop and start them over till they get it right. When you assembled those musicians and everybody was in that studio or in that rehearsal space, how long did it take for them to get the song the way you wanted it? Hey, man, let me tell you something about a hit song. It's one of the easiest things in the studio can do. When you run up on a hit song and all the elements are right there, 
It doesn't take long to record it. And that's what happened that day. It seemed as though everybody just locked into the same page. So I think maybe it took maybe an hour to get it all done. That song was ready in an hour? Yeah, because the drummer had his own beat that fit. You know what I mean? It was natural for him. We all had worked together before. We were no strangers to each other. We already locked in. I started talking an idea before I could finish. They already know what I'm looking for. And I guess it's kind of exciting when everybody's grooving and they feel they feel it. Yeah, but the, the drama and that same rhythm section did rocking chair. Are there horns in this song? Yeah, I had a problem with the horns. I was still teaching school at the time. And uh, I called to the studio because they said they were going to put some horns on it. So Henry played the horn, played it over the phone for me. And I went, I, I, I started cursing. I don't want those effing horns on this song. I don't want that. I don't want it's not for that. And I started raising hell. And, and, and Henry said, hey, okay, okay, well, okay. All right, we'll, we'll take the horns off. So on the thing, on the horn, dun 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 That's all I wanted, but Steve had put some horns on that with all kind of little, no, 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 kill my groove. Do you think that the horns actually added something to it? Yeah, it kept it going. That's my horn arrangement with Mike Lewis. The okay. intro. That's all I needed. And then for them to stab. That's all. In other words, it's not that kind of song that have a whole lot of different arrangements. The song was done on an eight-track machine. We have but eight tracks to work with. Mm -hmm. So I had to mix and record everything you hear on those records on eight tracks. But see, by being in the band all my life, I knew what I wanted to hear. And I was so excited when that song came out. When you put that cassette down on Henry's desk, what did he think? The next thing I know, when he put the record out, it just boom, it went stone cold hit. Hot DJs went crazy over it. We went on and did rocking chair right after that. KC picked up on his feel to do all the big hits he had. They were crazy about it everywhere. So the next thing I know, I'm in the studio doing a session and he calls me down and I go into his office. He got people there from Warner Brothers, Sony, <laughs> Capitol. I look around, I see all these people. I said, what, this is some kind of clan meeting in here? <laughs> <laughs> and you know back then i had a big mouth thug attitude in a way and said we want to know one thing willie uh, do you have control over this artist you say you manage her do you i said look how many times you're going to ask me this question do i look like some kind of punk and henry looked at me and kind of waved his hand a little bit said cool off willie that's okay all right all right you know, when I saw faces that I wasn't used to seeing, so I started putting on my bully suit. <laughs> mm. 
I didn't know that afterwards that it was big record people. They said, the reason we're asking you this question, I thought they were just some ordinary people Henry had there as friends. I didn't know they was from Capitol, Atlantic, and all that. said, we're going to get behind this cleanup woman record. So we want to just make sure that you had the paperwork on her before we invest all their money in her. That's when I felt like I could run up on the rock and hide for being like a bully. When the song was done, and before the Rahner Brothers people and all those other folks showed up, how long had the song been released and where? In Miami. It got to be number one and a big, big hit in Miami. How long did it take? About three or four days. What did it feel like when you heard that song on the radio and they started playing it all the time? It felt like that I could get a, another car. Number one, I could go and buy me another car. And then it was good for my family. I could help my wife pay her tuition for college. And I, I could take the kids to the drive-in and buy buttered popcorn or whatever and, and splurge on hot dogs. It felt so good, man. It was like something. When, when you have success, I had a goal in life. The first thing I want to do with this record stuff is to have a hit record that people listening in, in, in the creative room will say, yeah, I like that, I like that. And then get it on the radio and hear it played over the radio. And then I wanted to go. Haven't they heard on the radio? Then I wanted it gold. Then I wanted it uh, platinum. Then I wanted a Grammy. And I got all of that. But just being in the first phase of what I dreamed about, having a hit record and had all these big labels like Atlantic, they took it over, they made it a big hit. It came in number two on the R&B charts. It was just Al Green was number one and Betty Wright was number two. In fact, they did quite a few shows together, one, two punch. At this time, this has been the biggest record, hit record you've been associated with, right? How was the ride? It was almost like, well, what's next? Because we've crossed this, now we know we can do it. So let's keep on with this groove. Let's keep moving. In other words, we got some hit records after that, like Babysitter. And secretary. And they were hits to this day. Almost everything we did after that was a hit record. The doors were open. I had the DNA and the skills to engineer and get the sound out of that eight track studio. So we had the science of sound and we had the creativity. We had super musicians like Lattimore. Timmy Thomas. I've been waiting in her apartment all with my blood. 
running cold and thin. Beaver. It hurt me so bad, I felt like I was We had the winning team. So it was almost like we have arrived. That record was like the beacon. That was, you know how you see the, the, the spotlight on the train coming down the track? Mm-hmm getting brighter and brighter that was us can you talk about how the cleanup woman has been sampled well it's the most sample song i have out with my name on it and the other one is i want to sex you up and tonight is the night Cleanup woman, if you go to who sampled, it's all over the place. Mary J. Bly. And a whole lot of other people sample cleanup woman. Sure, Chance the Rapper. Chance, Acid Rapper, Soccer Hacky Sacker, Cocky Khaki Jacket Jacker, Slap Happy. Sublime. Are you surprised at how that song has endured? When, when hip hop first started and the first samples I got, and I saw the possibilities in the song, I was surprised the first time. But after that, I wasn't surprised anymore because it's almost a natural. You know, you get used to it. And I had to get used to another song called Am I a Good Man? Am I a good man? That was done back in the, the start of the Betty Wright career. And I just got two samples, people doing samples on that song. Take my hands out my pocket, you can see my thumbs. Both of them turn green. So I'm not surprised by cleanup woman anymore. But I'm surprised about the new stuff that's, that they're locking into. And I'm really surprised about the ideas coming from the late 60s and 70s, way back. And the contemporary crowd right now locking into the sound. Eventually, Betty Wright ended up getting a Grammy for Where is the Love? She died in 2020. What's your most enduring memory of her? What would you like people to remember about that? That early in her career, she really didn't get the exposure that she should have gotten. So what I like for them to remember is basically what they are doing now as far as knowing that she is one of the best female vocalists. 
to ever stand behind a microphone. And they know that, and that's what they're going to remember. And I thank God for that. And they're doing it. They're making her the biggest, biggest star that should have happened when she was very young. But I have to admit one thing, the competition was really stiff. And that's what really motivated her, the competition. And she didn't back down. She was always up front. Miss B, if you mess around and let her go on the stage before you to open your show, you're going to have to wait maybe an hour before you come on so the stage could uh, might cool off. She did that to the OJs and a lot of other artists, so they started getting wise. And let her come on third or something. <laughs> oh, <my laughs> or just let her close the show because she was hot. She was hot. But eventually, uh, she had to work with people just as hot as she was. But she put some fire in a lot of them. They had to wait around. But that people just remember her as being a super entertainment and entertainer. Number one, when it came down to being super, a super star, highly, highly intelligent. Her IQ was off the charts, very creative. And look, you wouldn't want to work with anybody other than Betty. She kept me in line. A lot of times I try to go off, you know, a little bit. And she said, why this song is not sounding up to the volume that the other songs on the album, Willie? I said, oh, Willie, uh, oh, oh, look, Betty, don't worry about that. And the people are not going to, she said, wait a minute. If you can't get it to sound like the other songs, let's forget about the album, please. I learned a lot from her. We learned a lot from each other. We were good for each other. And together we made a lot of hit music. Did a clean-up woman help you to stop teaching? Oh, man. I was teaching school at the time the record. I called the studio and said, uh, Henry, how's the record doing? He said, hey, Willie, do you want to te stop teaching school now? I said, oh, come on, Henry, don't, don't play games with me. I'm just on this break. I got to get back. I got a class coming in. He said, Willie, I'm serious. Do you want to quit teaching school now? I said, Henry, I got a family. I got a light bill. I got grocery. I got a, a big wife that loves to eat. He said, well, I'm serious. The record is taking off. It's big. You could quit now. You know what I did? I went straight to the principal's office. I said, look, I won't be coming in tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> She said, what, are you sick? I said, no, man. She said, are you quitting? I said, I'm thinking about quitting. She said, don't quit, Willie. Just take a leave of absence. I heard your song. <laughs> <laughs> she heard Clean Up Woman, and she already knew about I was working with Betty Wright. So she said, don't quit. Just take a leave of absence. What grade were you teaching? First, I started with elementary. So I was teaching middle school then. Did you used to bring your records in to your students? Yeah, I brought Clean Up Woman in before it got to be gold. And I brought Rocking Chair in and one other, two other records. Most of the classes I taught, even in middle school, 
they already know my connection with the music. So I always shared the music for my art classes. I taught social studies by playing music that related to social life, like uh, sharecroppers, Big Bad John. Big Bad John. Uh, the Battle of New Orleans. Well, we fired our guns and the British kept coming. There wasn't as many as there was a while ago. We fired once more and they began to run it. Well, down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. I taught lessons from that music. Mm-hmm. And I had them do murals and do research on the history. So I, I, I see my students now. I saw a bunch of them uh, down at uh, uh, Bayfront a couple of weeks ago, and they remember that music I played for them and the history mm-hmm. and the social stuff. What did they think of Cleanup Woman? I did a lesson plan centered around evaluating creativity, and I gave them a little thing about good, number one, and what they thought about it and the chances of it becoming gold. In other words, I gave a lesson plan on how to critique art. And then it's a topic music. I said, I'm going to play music for you. And you just rate it between one and 10. You write down what you don't like, what you do like, and whether it's going to be a big record or not, and whatever comments you have. So that was a lesson plan I did for that day from all the grades that I was teaching. And by the way, this was in elementary school then. And I played the music for them and they picked cleanup woman. 95% said it was going to be a gold record. Well, that was a nice focus group for you. Yeah. And then for rocking chair, they put a gold record. Uh, I think I had two or three others because I had to have everything up going for at least an hour, you know, to teach the class. For those two records that they picked to be gold, they turned out to be gold. And the comments on some of the, some of the students wrote, forget it. <laughs> <laughs> and some of them wrote, I, I remember those guys, like, no way, Mr. Clark. <laughs> and that's about wasted money. <laughs> Visit the Deep City Records YouTube channel for updates and listens of their latest releases. Like this one, Life Ain't Easy Now from Coyote Garza. And look for the documentary Deep City, the birth of the Miami sound, also available on YouTube. In January 1972, Clean Up Woman reached number two on the Billboard R&B singles chart, number six on the Hot 100, and number 49 on the year-end chart.
If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to this podcast and feel free to discuss on the Song Surgery Podcast Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. Until next time.